So we are just one week away from Christmas. We are, we are getting there. So this series is Surprised by Christmas. So you only have a week left, so surprise. But uh, our goal is to be surprised by Christmas this week by the birth of Jesus Christ. Now you might think that's a little premature, but the birth narrative goes on pretty long in Luke. So today we're actually going to focus on a specific part of the birth of Jesus. We're focusing on Jesus's kind of hometown, his birthplace, the time and the place where Jesus was born. Now we're focusing on that because we recognize that where you are born matters. Now you guys tell me this all the time, that I was born in Southern California, and so I say lots of weird things like, yeah, or, uh, <laughs> or have little quirks. You guys were, a lot of you were born in Elkton, so I think I can say it right back to you, but... Uh, <laughs> Really, where you are born is, uh, is part of who you are. It's going to shape who you turn out to be. And so if you are a Marylander, you're going to be great at cracking crabs, and you're going to know about lacrosse, and you're just going to be a slightly different kind of person. If you're from Delaware, you're going to be from Delaware. <laughs> you pay less taxes, I guess. Um, <laughs> So, uh, but it shapes. It shapes who you are. It shapes who you are. And today we're talking about who Jesus is as a result of his birth. How is he different because of where he is from? And also, you guys are all different because of, of when you were born. You would be a very different person if you were born in the 12th century. Or if you were born in, in the 7th century. You'd be very different people. And so, where you were born and when you were born... It's going to shape who you are. And today we're looking at that for Jesus. What does Jesus' birthplace, when and where he was born, show us about who he is? What does it show us about his kingdom? And how does it show us a kind of a picture of who we are supposed to be as members of that kingdom? So that's our goal today. So we're going to be looking at three aspects. First, the, the when was Jesus born? His hometown, Bethlehem. And then we're going to be looking at kind of specifically where, where was Jesus born. So let's jump into Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. Not a long passage, so not too bad. Chapter 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all, the world should be that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registers, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn. Pray with me before we jump in. Father, I ask that you would make your word effective. Would it penetrate our hearts? Would it change our lives by the spirit and by faith? Would we become new people? better able to see who you are and who we are as a result by this passage. 
Father, work in it that we may glorify you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So first, we're jumping into the time of Jesus' birth. Now, to stress something kind of basic, Jesus was born once in time. This is not a fantasy. He doesn't get to have four or five iterations like Spider-Man. No, he was born once. He was born once. That's just a historical fact. And we believe that. Now, it's kind of silly that we have to say that, but we have to say that. We believe in the, in the real birth of Jesus. And so let's jump into to when he was born. Chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So after hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting, the Messiah has finally come and he has come in the days of the Roman Empire. The days of the Roman Empire. And we wonder, what is so distinct about the Roman Empire that in all of time, God would choose this time for Jesus to come? What is unique about the Roman Empire? Well, first, it's an empire. This is not just a city. He's not just being born to a country. It's an empire. And there's simple, some implications there. Notice that it says that all the world should be registered. There's some arrogance there, but the empire of Rome, the Roman Empire, was the world. It was world-encompassing. And so when Jesus came, he wasn't coming just to bring a little town. He was coming to bring his own kingdom, his own empire, his own kind of world-encompassing ministry that he would be the head of. That's the first, first thing, but all right, what else do we know about the Roman Empire? Well, it was led by Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, his name means the, the wise ruler. And what we need to understand about Caesar Augustus is that by this time in Roman history, the people were starting to act as if these, these Caesars were gods. They were deifying them. And with extreme language. So let me read this. This is from the ruins from the period right around when Augustus was ruling. And it calls him the savior of the world, the son of God, the most divine beginning of all things. And his birth is heralded as the good news, the gospel that goes out to the whole world. That is Caesar Augustus. That is what he declared to his people that his kingdom is based upon his own deity. And I think that's actually kind of helpful to understand why did Jesus come at the time he did? He came as an alternative kingdom. When we had a king professing to be the very things that Jesus actually was. This is a kingdom of, of false worship. A kingdom of false gods of the false son of God. This is also a time when, when people, person after person was saying that they were the Messiah. All these false messiahs had come, all these false rulers were coming, and Jesus comes to set the record straight. So we need to understand the book of Luke is a polemic. It's, a, it's an argument. It's an attack against all of these false propagandas of the Roman Empire and all of the, the false belief of the Jews. 
that Jesus was coming as the definitive real thing in direct opposition to the Roman Empire. And I think we see in that that Jesus shows us that these kingdoms, these places we are a part of, they're not just powers. They're not just lands or armies. That the kingdoms of the world have a certain allegiance. And that it's a matter not just of power, but of worship. That when we encounter the kingdoms of the world, we will be drawn in to worship. To worship Caesar. To worship... Well, we're not, probably not tempted to worship Caesar. But to worship uh, the stability that it provides. That we see our land as our God. Or at least the, the luxuries of our land. That we worship our, our wealth or our comfort or our prosperity. And Jesus is basically saying that I'm offering a different kingdom. A kingdom where you worship something different. Someone who deserves worship where you actually worship God. And so Christmas, holistically, is not just a warm fuzzy. It's calling us, what do you worship? Who do you worship? And to celebrate Christmas is a cognizant choice. You're choosing to celebrate Jesus Christ as your king. And you are saying, no, this is the kingdom that I am a part of. I am part of the spiritual kingdom that Jesus brought in his birth. And it should come with a, a conscious effort to reject the false worship of our world. To throw off the, the worship of other people or social status of our comfort or our luxuries. We are casting these aside and we are focusing solely upon the real king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. There's a challenge here. And I think that that challenge comes out when we really do understand the time when Jesus was born. Kingdoms are not just kind of neutral entities. They're going to demand your heart. And it's a matter of worship. Who will you worship? Now we can kind of dumb that down by focusing not on the worship aspect of the kingdom of God and focus instead on the outward aspects. We can say, well, the worship part is kind of hard. So let's kind of make it more tangible. Let's like establish a government. Let's, let's establish rule. Let's go do things. And forget that it is a spiritual kingdom. Now we see this in the example of Quirinius. So Quirinius, that's a good name. Who wants to be named that? Yeah. Hey, hey, come on. Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Quirinius, he was tasked with, uh, with taxing the people. And so he figured the best way to do that is to make everyone go to their hometown. And once they're at their hometown, then we can take a census and make sure that no one's, no one's getting off free. Everyone is right where they need to be. That's Quirinius's plan. Now, if there's one thing that needs to reinforce that this is, this is history, this is not made up, no one would throw in the taxation policy of Rome in their book. This is, this is definitely what happened. Uh, we all know all too well that you can't escape taxes. And, and here it is, right in the Jesus story. Jesus himself can't escape taxes, uh, unfortunately. So, here is the Roman Empire forcing itself upon 
the kingdom of God, the people of God. And we wonder, well, how should they respond? How should they respond to the kingdom of man interfering with them? Well, there's one group that, that decided that they would, they would take a stand. The zealots. These are the, the political kind of... What would I, the activists, the activists. And their, their task is to, they want to overthrow Caesar. Because they're seeing this kingdom coming to the people of God, and they say, no, no, this taxation is slavery. You are enslaving us, and we will not put up with it. And so what did they do? They fought in wars. They fought, and they fought, and they fought. And most of them died fighting against the Roman Empire. So we'd ask, okay, is that, is that the right response? Is that how we're supposed to fight as the kingdom people now? I'd say if we follow the example of Jesus, no. No, it's not about the outward things. That Jesus and his disciples, some were zealots, but Jesus kind of squatched that. No, they're focused on the spiritual aspects of the kingdom. That fundamentally they're called to worship. That that is their first priority. And they can worship no matter the circumstance. And the kingdom of God will be advanced as they worship and as they glorify God, not as they try to establish a second kingdom, another physical kingdom. No, they are fighting for a spiritual kingdom using spiritual weapons, fundamentally the battle of faith. That is what we are called to in this kingdom. The zealots actually... We might say that, no, they were like the real faithful people. They were like going to go out and do it. But I think this story shows us that they actually lacked the faith to believe that God could be working in the midst. That God could be working even while the people were oppressed. Even while there were foreign powers in control. They trusted that God could still work. And so this Christmas, I would tell us to keep worshiping. And I would tell us to, to focus on the spiritual aspect of this kingdom and not get lost. To remember that we are a new people, renewed in a spiritual kingdom, and to keep the faith that God is building his kingdom no matter what happens. All right, so that takes us to our next point. This is the where of Jesus was born, his, his hometown. And we see that Actually, behind the scenes, behind Quirinius and behind Caesar Augustus, God was working. And he was working to make sure that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. He was orchestrating all of these events. He was guiding the hearts of princes and kings so that this would happen. And Mary and Joseph, they didn't have to rebel they went along for the ride. They were kind of subjected to the oppression of Rome. And Joseph and his family go back to their hometown. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, unfortunately for, for us guys, Joseph doesn't have a very big role in this story. He has a bigger role in Matthew, but in Luke, he's kind of just there to make sure that 
Jesus gets to the right place. But Joseph conveniently is related to King David. And so when he goes back to his hometown, he goes back to Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, if we don't get the connection there, 700 years before, God had given a prophecy that the Messiah, the true king, would be born in Bethlehem. He speaks that in Micah 5, 700 years before. Clearly, God is doing some, some handiwork here. Look what it says in 5.2. You can't, don't turn there. I'll just read it. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who shall, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Micah prophesies of this ancient one, this great ruler who would come to this little town of Bethlehem. And the people were encouraged that even though they're in the midst of war, even though they're potentially going to be destroyed by the Assyrians, to keep looking to Bethlehem, to keep looking to this little town. I just want to stress the fact that it could have looked like God was forgetting his people, that he wasn't hearing their cries, that he was neglecting them, that they needed to take it into their own hands. But no, God was working. God was ensuring that his kingdom was being established, even through the kingdoms of men. They didn't know it. The people of God didn't know it. But God was working. And he was working salvation. He was working that the kingdom of Jesus Christ might be established. Now, I want that to be an encouragement to you. I hope it is. Because I think we can get lost in kind of the mire of the day-to-day -day and think, well, is God really working? Yes. That God is more dedicated to his kingdom than we are. And that he is building his kingdom. And he will use us in surprising ways. He will use the things of the world in surprising ways. Because God, God used these Roman political leaders. And you know, he didn't stop there. What else did God use through Rome? God decided to make the, the Roman cross his symbol of salvation. He totally reinterprets it. And he spreads the gospel by what? Roman roads. The roads that were built so that he could tax the people. So that they could send out their armies. And here is the gospel going forth on those same roads. Likewise, we see uh, the language of Rome. Greek. That is the language of our New Testament. The common tongue throughout the empire. And with that language... This is killing me. Sorry, Stephen. <laughs> uh, with that language, God is able to, to spread the gospel to the whole region. Using something of Rome. He was able to use the, the agora. So there, these were like places we've argued philosophy. We'd think, oh, no, that's, that's terrible. They're just arguing heresy and, and false theology. But Paul came in and he used those same things to preach the gospel. It was the perfect forum for telling the good news of Jesus. 
God uses the things of the kingdom that we do not expect. So much so that even Paul with the, uh, the Roman courts, he went to the courts of Rome and argued, I have a right to speak the gospel. And he went to speak to, to kings, to governors, to Caesar himself. God uses the things of this kingdom. And I, I would encourage you, keep pressing on. Build the kingdom of Jesus, knowing that, that God cannot be thwarted. Have the confidence to see that maybe, maybe he will use you, frail little you, to do something amazing in the kingdom. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about huge spiritual victories and battles being won when we least expect it. So let's make that part of Christmas. That's a good thing. All right, but let's, let's narrow back in. Why Bethlehem? Why did God from all sovereign history decide that it's really, really important that Bethlehem be the place that Jesus needs to be born? Now, you might know the answer already. It's because Bethlehem is the city of David. That's where King David, the kind of ideal king of Israel, that's his hometown. And it's important that the connection is drawn between King David and the better King David, Jesus Christ. All, everything David does is supposed to point to Jesus. The good things point to an even better Jesus. The bad things point to a, a much better Jesus. They're pointing forward so that Jesus follows in the footsteps of his ancestor, of King David. And we ask, well, how, how does he follow in his footsteps? I would say there's, there's three main things. First of all, David was not the expected ruler. He was no one you expect to, to take the throne. They'd had Saul already. And Saul, Saul was, was handsome. He stood like a foot above everyone else. And these are, this is the person that the people chose. But David is the person that God chooses. And God chooses the youngest brother who's just out with the sheep, the person no one expects, and he is the greatest leader in Israel's history. Jesus is the same. He is not anyone we would expect to be the king of the universe. When he comes, he doesn't have any beauty or wealth or power to entice people. He doesn't come with, with anything that would, would draw people in, and yet he is the chosen ruler. Now, what else do we know about David? David was a conquering king. The conquering king. There are other kings who spent a lot of time in peace, guys like Solomon. But no, Jesus is a conquering king like David. David went out and he, he killed Goliath with that stone. He defeated armies. He, killed his, he defeated his thousands upon thousands, as the songs go. And Jesus, when he came, he came to conquer, to defeat sin and death, to rule, and to bring peace. And not just kind of like a, a simple peace, like, oh, just peace with God. No, he, he brought peace because he had defeated all of God's enemies. There was no one less to fight with. He had defeated sin and death and Satan. He was a conquering king. But I think most of all, David was the worshiping king. That is the thing that made him unique. 
is that he had a heart after God. He loved God. He loved worshiping. And that was what made his king, kingdom work. Is that he wrote hymns. He wrote psalms. He wrote poetry. And he led the people in worship. We already said that the kingdom of Jesus is about worship. That we either worship the kings of the world or we worship King Jesus. Well, Jesus came to bring worship. He came to teach us how to worship. He taught us how to worship even in the midst of terrible circumstances. So that is, that is King Jesus. King Jesus following in the line of King David of Bethlehem. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Well, if our king is the unlikely ruler, we are probably going to be the unlikely citizens. The weak and the outcast, those the world doesn't have anything to do with. Or people who've realized that we are nothing before God. That we depend solely upon his mercy. That we are undeserving to be citizens. And yet we are also the conquering citizens. That we have victory. We have victory over our enemies. We have victory over sin and Satan and death. And we know that. That that peace is going to be everlasting. That it cannot be taken from us. And finally, we are called to be worshiping citizens. That we are to worship in the kingdom of God, following after Jesus Christ. We are supposed to be kingdom, kingdom people of the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Christ. Now there's one aspect we haven't talked about yet. One aspect we haven't talked about yet. We said that where you're born really matters. And the last place is where Jesus is born. Jesus is born in a barn and laid in a manger. And that's going to shape who he ultimately is. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them at the inn. Remember last week we talked about this is the God of gods. This is the King of kings. The Lord of lords. And here he is in the ancient equivalent of a barn sitting in a manger. Now God could have orchestrated it that he made Jesus have a cush life. He could, have, he could have done that. That Jesus just was born into the lap of luxury. He had feasting and palaces and kingdoms. And he would have deserved it. It's not like that he wouldn't have deserved that. No, he, he deserved far more. But instead, God orchestrated. But the, the Trinity got together and decided a plan. And they decided, you know what? Jesus needs to be born in a barn with, with no fanfare, forgotten by the world, that that is who Jesus needs to be. Now, when I talk about that, what, what picture comes to mind? I want to make sure it's the right picture of Jesus sitting in this barn. All right, first of all, the, the nativities, those are deceptive. First thing wrong with the nativities, there's no angel. The angel comes later. He comes to the shepherds. He doesn't appear now. There are no angels. They don't get to come. 
So we'll, we'll leave them on the side. No angels. There's no fanfare. It's, it's actually pretty dull. The, shep- the shepherds haven't come yet. The magi won't come for a long time. So it is just the three of them sitting in the barn. Now next thing. Uh, how are you picturing Mary? All right, she has a halo. No, no, take the halo off. <laughs> Toss the halo. All right, no halos. She's a normal woman. And now picture, is she, is she beautiful and radiant? All right, what did she just go through? She, <laughs> she was nine months pregnant and had to trek 80 miles all the way from the northern Galilee down to Judea. She's probably not feeling too hot. Kesey can barely walk. You know, like, <laughs> she's not even nine months yet. Um, and she just gave birth to her first child in a barn. All right, she's probably not, like, fresh-faced and bushy-tailed. Like, she's in her, in her, like, nicest pale blue robes. No, she's probably, like, pretty scattered at this point. All right, so now let's think of Jesus. What does Jesus look like? All right, Jesus' arms open. <laughs> and he has, he has a, a little square right here, conveniently placed. Is he, is he glowing like a light bulb? Because he shouldn't be. No, he's, he's a normal kid. And when they come out, they're usually kind of slimy and purple and their head's all smushed. Like, this is, this is a real kid. Jesus is not a magic baby. And he was lying there in a food trough, an animal's food trough. This is, this is the picture here. We can idealize it and make it like really like, oh, like peaceful and serene. That's not what Luke is getting at here. This is Jesus in the muck and the mire. This is Jesus, the lowest of the low. This is his birth. This is his inheritance. This is what he signed up for. To get down and dirty with every, this whole humanity thing. This is no joke. And I'm sure Jesus was crying. This is, that is the picture. This is a picture of Jesus coming to be with humanity. And that ought to help us understand who Jesus really is. What is this king like? This is not the radiant, amazing king. No, this is a king who would live his life hungry and thirsty. Who would be questioned about whether, whether or not he was allowed to hang out with the riffraff he hung out with. The prostitutes and the swindlers. This is a Jesus who would touch the lepers. Who would touch the, the unclean people and heal them. This is a Jesus who, who suffered with us who was with us in, in the worst of the worst of humanity. This is Jesus, the friend of sinners. That is what Jesus' birth is supposed to hearken in us. That realization. And that if Jesus is going to be our king, we are going to be a messy people who, who recognize that we are unclean, we are sinful, we have no right to be touched by Jesus, but, but here he is meeting us in the muck. Just like, like Norma said, she said, I, has he lifted you out of that, that pit yet? This is Jesus coming into the pit. That is the incarnation. 
Don't make it, don't make it warm and fuzzy. It's, that's what this is. And he does that out of love. To choose us as his children. To choose you as, as daughter and son. And there's no other way but for him to come down and get us. And so he does. The birth of Jesus shows us the life that he would live. But it also shows us the death that he would live. This is an unclean Jesus coming to die for unclean people. This is a, a suffering Jesus coming to die for suffering people. This is a Jesus who, who has absolutely nothing. And he comes to die for people who have nothing. You are what you were born into. And Jesus was born into this. He was born to die. He was born to save a sinful people. But in that death, he became that king. The King David that we we're all expecting. He became the, the unlikely king. The king who died on a cross. No one's more unlikely than that. And the people mocked him and put a, a crown of thorns on his head. Saying, are, are you, really, you really the king? You really think you're the Caesar around here? He died. The unlikely death of a king. But in that death, he also became the conquering king. He conquered sin and death. He killed those things by dying with them. He barely he drags them down into the grave and leaves them there. That is what Jesus did in his death. He was a conquering king. And finally, he is the worshipful king. Even to his very death, he worshiped. And when he rose again from the dead, he was leading us in worship. We should worship him for the fact that he has drawn us to new life. That he has saved us. That he has triumphed over all evil. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? We have to be people who reflect this kind of a kingdom. People who are willing to get into the muck. People who are willing to serve. People who are willing to go to the unlovely, the sick, the unclean. And follow Jesus Christ where he went first. That's the first thing, but I think the most important thing is we are called to worship we are called to worship because Jesus Christ did this for us. He died for a people unclean. That he brought us into the kingdom of grace. And we should be worshiping every day until he comes back to bring that kingdom of glory. We know that he will. So let's worship him in the meantime.